Four weeks ago, I preached a message about how we could make best choices after we've already made bad choices. And that message raised some questions for some of you, and I've had a few good conversations as a result. And the main sort of recurring theme of these questions was, well, what happens then when someone else makes a bad choice and the consequence of that choice affects you? You see, that message four weeks ago really focused on the one making the bad choices with the intention that I might be able to offer hope and encouragement that we can recover from those um, bad decisions if we can accept God's forgiveness, embrace embrace God's grace, and then walk in truth. But obviously there is the other side to that. Just because you are forgiven, how do you then make things right with the other person if, in fact, your choices have had a negative impact on them? So although Pastor Ken was uh, planning to start a new series of messages from John's Gospel today, I asked if I could take one more message in our summer series that we've been calling uh, Making Best Choices. And this morning, we're going to talk about the choice to be a peacemaker. And we'll kick off the series called Taking Jesus Seriously next Sunday. It's going to be a great study through the Gospel of John, and you don't want to miss that. But I want to talk about conflict this morning. Fun, right? Everybody's favorite subject. Because just when you think of conflict, right away it conjures up pain and hurt and likely memories of betrayal and broken trust. Now, the danger, of course, in addressing a subject like this is that it could lead to some assumptions like, well, is there some conflict in the church? And he's using this message to try to address it. And to that, I want to say right up, up, up front, absolutely not. There isn't, thankfully. What we have and are experiencing at at, uh, a wonderful season at TCC, we have a strong sense of God's blessing, which I believe is due, due in large part to the unity that we have. And friends, we have to value that and protect it. It's precious and never, ever take it for granted because that is sadly not always true. If anything, this message is intended to be preventative and helpful Because I know that in every sphere of life, we will have conflict. It's inevitable. And knowing how to deal with conflict in a biblical way will benefit all of us in every circle that we travel in. So let me ask you this morning, as soon as I said something about conflict, can you think of a conflict that you may be in right now? Are you thinking about it? Are you brave enough to raise your hands if you have that? Some of you are honest. The rest of you are just either too shy or you're just not willing to admit it. Maybe it's because the conflict that you're having is with the person next to you. And maybe instead of a few arm raises, there's a few elbow nudges. But the point is, right, wherever there are relationships and people, there will be conflict within families, within marriages, Within schools, teams, work, even neighbors, you'll have conflict with. I haven't had a conflict with a neighbor yet. It might happen. Uh, You see, we just got new neighbors in June, which we were excited about because the house next to us had been sitting empty since last September and had become a bit of an unsightly mess. 
So we were grateful when they moved in and they started to clean up the yard and spray to control and kill the weeds that were uh, kind of taking over their yard. The problem is they used Roundup. Anybody who knows a little bit about gardening knows that Roundup will kill not just the weeds, but everything else in its sight. So he pretty much has completely destroyed their lawn. And of course, there's a chain link fence between our yards. And so when he was spraying the weeds along there, the overspray went into our yard. And so it, it killed a strip of our grass, which, you know what, I can live with that, even though it bugs me a little bit. But hey, I can let it go. The problem is, in June, I poured my sweat into digging a 15-foot-long trench, planted 10 beautiful cedars along there to create a nice nice privacy fence, and so now I'm just kind of waiting to see if my cedars will wilt. And if they do, what should I do? What would you do? Do you just kind of ignore it? Invest another 500 bucks and all of the work necessary now to pull out the dead ones and plant new ones? Or do you just go and knock on the door and have a conversation? I mean, that's just one simple story. There's thousands others like it and worse than that. But you all have your stories, I bet. We all have stories to tell. And as followers of Jesus, we are called to be peacemakers. And being a peacemaker or one who makes peace is very different than being a peacekeeper. And we'll explain some of that as we go. Jesus at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 says, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. You get that? God blesses the peacemakers. They're called his children when they do the work of pursuing peace. Now, before we go a little further, I should say this, that this is a huge subject, and I'm never going to be able to cover every little detail about this, and it's probably going to even raise more questions, and then as a result, maybe more sermon topics down the road. We're just going to scratch the surface. But let me give you a couple of resources if you want to study this a little deeper. And I want to acknowledge right up front that my understanding of this subject of conflict and relationships has been largely influenced by the work of Jim Van Eypern of Metanoia Ministries. I had the opportunity in 2008 to work with Jim and his wife Sharon helping churches in conflict. And you can check out their website if you're interested in this uh, subject further. Simply restoringthechurch.org. Easy to remember, restoringthechurch.org. And there you'll find dozens of articles on various aspects of conflict and character, as well as books. And two of them that I would highly recommend. The first is just Making Peace. The subtitle is A Guide to Overcoming Church Conflict. But although it's written for churches, it has application to every sphere of uh, relationships that we might be in. And then another book called The Good, Good Confession. Enough of the commercial, right? So first, to understand conflict, we should first look at what causes conflict. In Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 15, Jesus is approached by someone in the crowd, and he's asked to settle um, an inheritance di- dispute that he has with his brother. And Jesus replies to this young man, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, Beware. Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. 
Now, this passage simply reveals a common human tendency that we have. That whenever we're faced with conflict, we tend to focus on what our opponent has done wrong or what he or she should do to make things right. In contrast, God always calls us first to focus on what is going on in our own hearts when we are in conflict with others. Why? Because the heart is the source of all of our thoughts, words, and actions, and therefore the source of all of our conflicts. Again, listen to the words of Jesus, this time from Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19. For from the heart, okay, from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Now, the role of the heart is is further described in vivid detail in James chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. And understanding this passage is vital to preventing and resolving conflict. James writes, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Now, a careful look at this verse will help us discover that the root cause of our conflicts come from the unmet desires of our hearts. You see, when we feel we cannot be satisfied unless we have something that we want or think that we need, then that desire turns into a demand. And then... If someone fails to meet that need or to meet that desire, we start to condemn them in our hearts and we quarrel and fight to get our way. In short, conflict is caused when the desires that we have, some even legitimate desires, they grow into demands and we judge and punish those who get in our way. That's maybe not what we wanted to hear this morning, is it? That the conflicts that we may be in actually start with us. And so the first thing that we need to do is look at our hearts. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But we need to be very careful to just think about it as being the other person's problem. We do need to step back and say, what is going on in my heart? And if you are honest with yourself and you think about maybe a recent conflict that you've been, you think, well, yeah, there was, it was about this. I wanted this and I didn't get this. And therefore, because I didn't get that, it caused this conflict. So if that's what causes conflict, then how do we handle conflict? See, conflict is never something to manage, although you'll hear lots of people talking about managing conflict. Conflict needs to be resolved and reconciled. But when we handle conflict, I would say this, that most of the time the way that we handle it is wrong, (laughs) right? We just haven't learned how to handle conflict very well. And usually when there's conflict, there's two main responses that we have. We either escape, right? We run away, we want to hide, we want it to go away, whatever. Or we attack. Kind of those two two, uh, ends of the spectrum. The flee or fight kind of thing. When you think about how you typically handle conflict, do they fall into maybe one of those two categories? I'll expand that on on that in just a moment. But because most people have a primary or a dominant style that they will use almost automatically. Often without even realizing it. 
And when this style fails, then we might employ some other backup or, or a secondary conflict style. But the book that I refer to, Making Peace, he spends a chapter on each of these four conflict styles that I'm going to give to you in about four minutes. So just scratching the surface. First of all, there's the one who responds passively, the passive responder to conflict. This person just shows no outward or visible reaction to negative words or actions. They just kind of endure it inwardly. They submit to or remain silent about the conflict. The key word for the, the passive responder is just to surrender, right? Eh, just give up. People who use passive responses tend to believe that all conflict is wrong and it just must be endured quietly. Passive responders tend to believe mercy and love will forbid any confrontation, so they will always go to great lengths to deny feelings of anger and to avoid speaking the truth. Passive responders are usually quiet, unassertive, compliant, non-resistant, and submissive. They hold secrets and cover up. Passive responders are more interested in keeping themselves and others from hurt than they are in reconciling themselves or others to God's truth. So if I were to apply that to my situation with my neighbor, my, my uh, cedars all die, and I just kind of go, what are you going to do? And you just kind of go through it, and as I'm digging it out, I'm getting angrier and angrier, right? Because I know what killed my cedars, right? It wasn't my lack of watering or anything like that. It was his fault. Anyways, I, I got to... I'm pretty sure he's not here this morning. That would be embarrassing. <laughs> and maybe we need to edit that part out uh, when it goes online. So there's the passive responder. There's also the evasive responder. This is the one who will escape, divert. Key word is avoid. Just, just shirt the responsibility or consequences of hurts or wrongs resulting from an argument, accusation, conflict, or question. People who use evasive responses tend to believe that all conflict is wrong and therefore it must be avoided. Evasive responders are reluctant to admit that there is conflict and, when absolutely unavoidable, they'll start to spread rumors, they'll rationalize, they'll compromise or blame others for the conflict. They're more interested in kind of diverting themselves and sometimes others away from the discomfort and the responsibility of the conflict than they are in reconciling themselves and others to God's truth. And then there's the defensive responder. This is the one who's going to be protective. They want to resist any kind of attack. And they're excessively concerned with guarding against real or perceived threats of criticism, wrongdoing, failure, or even exposure of sin. People who use defensive responses tend to believe that all conflict is about proving who is right and who is wrong. And so authority and position must be defended at any cost. People tend to use defensive responses when they are more interested in protecting their version of events than they are in finding God's truth or even in restoring the broken relationships. Defensive responders can often be argumentative or persuasive and manipulative. Defensive responders are outspoken in their opinions and they may make extreme arguments to prove a point because they want to be right. And then there's the aggressive responders. 
These are the ones now, they're, they're, they are all about conflict, right? They're going to initiate confrontation. They're going to attack. They're going to argue. They might even use emotional, spiritual, and physical force to somehow defeat and put down the opposition. People who use aggressive responses tend to believe that all conflict is about power. So it's an opportunity to see who is the strongest and who is in control, right? So where the defensive person wants to be right... The aggressive person wants to be in control. And people who use aggressive uh, or tend to use this aggressive uh, method, they will have attack responses when they are more interested in protecting themselves and forcing truth rather than preserving a relationship. They will often be forceful, pushy, vigorous, and energetic in conflict. Aggressive responders are confrontational. They're bold and assertive in their feelings, and they may even take extreme measures just in order to win. Aggressive responders are usually dominant, direct, and demanding, and they can be extremely focused and narrow in perspective and unwilling to compromise. So when you think of those four responses, do you see yourself in any of those? Quick description, did you go, eh? That kind of hurts a little bit. That stings a bit. It makes me a little uncomfortable. But yeah, I tend to do a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Sometimes it's a combination, right? We talk about the passive-aggressive person. And do you know what they do? Right? They make a biting or cutting remark with a smile on their face. So you're not really sure what they're getting at, but their intention really is to be aggressive, but they're kind of being so passive about it because, well, I really love you, but... You know, and, 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 and it's just, just pretty obvious. Or sarcasm is a, often a te- technique as well. All of these, I have to say, are negative responses. And they're negative because they fall short of what biblical peacemaking principles there are. You see, every person, I believe, has kind of this negative conflict style. It might be personality-driven, It might be something learned over time. Maybe we viewed other people, adults, influencers who reacted, so we take the same approach. We must recognize and own our negative response style and realize that our response may actually be making the conflict worse. And knowing our style will help us to discover how we need to change our mind and our behavior in present and future conflicts. But thankfully... There is another way. It's called making peace. And the way we do this, the first thing we need to do, as I kind of alluded to earlier already, is that we examine ourselves. You see, if conflict is caused by the desires of our heart, then we should start by really closely examining our hearts and our motives. Asking ourselves, now why is this such a big deal? How did this escalate to this? What is, what is it about me? See, Jesus used a phrase that we probably learned in Sunday school at one time. Do you remember this? Why are you worried about the speck of dust in the other person's eye and you're unconcerned about the what? The log in your own eye. Right? So we got to deal kind of with the log in our own eye. We need to take that log out. And so here's some questions to ask that I think can reveal the true condition of our hearts and even the desires of our hearts. Ask yourselves, you know, what are the things that I am preoccupied with? What, what preoccupies my thinking? What's the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? Or ask yourself maybe, how would I complete this sentence? 
If only blank, then I would be happy, fulfilled, and secure. And if we're always looking for happiness and peace and security, and we think, well, if we have this, then I'm going to be happy. But if this doesn't happen, right, there's that unmet desire. And if we're expecting someone else to meet that desire and it's not met, then there's conflict. What do I want to preserve or avoid? What do I fear? When a, when a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or even depression? Is there something that I desire so much that I'm willing to disappoint others or hurt others in order to have it? And see, the bottom line is, we have to ask ourselves, what have I done? Or what have I not done to contribute to the conflict that I'm in right now. What is my part? That's a great place to start, where we own it. Now, once we've done that, we have a responsibility. And I'm just going to put it in this little phrase that I think we can all capture, and then I'm going to break it down a little bit. Simply this. Go and tell. Go and tell. Not show and tell, go and tell. Now, before I go further on that, there's one little thing that we have to keep in mind that I think is really important. There is a step sometimes when we think about conflict that somebody has offended us that sometimes we need to actually overlook the offense. We need to overlook it. Because... Oftentimes, the things that cause the disputes or the conflicts, they can be so insignificant that they should be resolved quietly by overlooking an offense. Proverbs 19.11 says, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. And sometimes when we actually think about it, we've examined our own hearts and we realize, you know, maybe this is more about kind of what I'm doing and what I want and it's not being met and... Yeah, what they said was hurtful, but was it that big of a deal? Maybe it truly wasn't, and we can overlook that. Because overlooking an offense is a form of forgiveness, and it involves a deliberate decision on our part not to dwell on it, not to talk about it, not to let it grow into some pent-up bitterness or anger. We just simply overlook it and let it go. And every time I'm cutting my grass... I'm reminding myself, just overlook it. It's not a big deal. But anytime there's conflict and our goal is to be peacemakers, then the goal really is reconciliation. Because now as we've thought about it and we real, think about the offense, we realize that maybe it is too serious to overlook. And it's damaged the relationships that we have. We absolutely need to resolve that personal conflict, those personal issues, through confession, sometimes through loving correction and forgiveness. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, If your brother has something against you, go and be reconciled. So here's the point. Even if you have done something, you need to go. And even if the other person has something has done something to you, 
you need to go. Or you've done something to them. In any case, you need to take the initiative. It's our responsibility to be the peacemaker, right? We can't wait for other people to come to us. And I'll explain that a little bit more in a second. Because here's a key verse, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Okay? So Jesus here in that context is speaking specifically of dealing with sin within the church. But I believe that it has broader application in terms of dealing with conflict in general. So I'm going to break this down a little bit that's going to help us understand what it means to go and tell. So the first phrase of this is just this, if there is conflict. And I really should probably say when there is conflict, right? Because it's inevitable. To be alive means to be in conflict. It's normal. What's not acceptable is unaddressed and unresolved conflict. So the very first thing is just to acknowledge that there's conflict. And sometimes we don't even want to do that, right? We're passive or evasive. We just, we just want it to go away. But secondly, if there's conflict, you, you, me, you always have to take the first step. If you've done something wrong, or even if the other person has done something wrong. And see, this is where most of these breakdowns happen. And then we use all of those negative responses we talked about earlier. You have to own the responsibility and say, this is not right. I don't want to leave this relationship unresolved. So I am going to you. And we're going to have a conversation about this. I'm getting ahead of myself. But you need to take the first step. And thirdly then, you go. You always take the first step. Take action. Don't avoid Don't wait until you can do it perfectly and have all the words and have thought it all through. Because perfection in dealing with conflict will never happen. Now, you may need to wait a little until you cool down. Ask yourself then, you know, why am I so angry about this? And this would not be a good emotional state to try to go to this person. But you need to go. You need to take the initiative. So if there's conflict, you go to the person to the person. Go directly to the other person involved. See, in dealing with conflict at this point, there's absolutely no space for a third party. You see, the tendency that we have is usually go to others, and that just makes things worse. Now, there might be a place for kind of assisted peacemaking, but that comes later, not yet. Right now, we need to try to resolve it just between you and me, between you and the person. And so you Go to the person in private. In private. Right? Because that's what Matthew says. Just between the two of you. See, we need to use sensitivity here. You you can't do it in front of other people. And the simplest guideline is to approach the other person the way you would want to be approached. Would this be an appropriate place? If somebody came to me now, would it be an embarrassing situation? Would it make a scene? This probably isn't the ideal place to deal with this. There's got to be a better way. So you want to say it with me? If there is conflict, you go to the person. And fifth, sixthly now, did I miss one? In private, there we go, and discuss the problem. And that's absolutely critical. I have seen more relationships go off the rails at this point because you decide it would be way better to send an email or a letter 
or worse, a text, right? There's no way you can explain, express your emotion, your, your, your nonverbal communication to that person through written communication, right? And when you go to the person, you're discussing it, you're talking about it, you're trying to work it through, and you can't have that exchange in emails. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever successfully resolved conflict by sending an email? It doesn't happen. I, I know even in, in, in the school system, I know we have lots of teachers and that, they'll tell you, you have an issue with the teacher, don't go to the principal, right? That's a third party. That might come, but go to the teacher, talk about it. And you'll find so many times things will be way easier resolved at that point than an email that has some words in it that are misunderstood and, and now you're trying to back up. Well, no, that's not what I meant and I didn't say that, but it just, it just has this way of growing and getting away on us. So it is absolutely critical for direct communication. Sit down with that person, go to the person in private and discuss the problem. Lastly, for the purpose of reconciliation. Okay? That's the goal is to restore and to resolve and to reconcile the conflict. It's not to win. It's not to prove that you're right and they're wrong. Because we can do all the things right to this point, but if our purpose and our motive at the end of the day isn't to be reconciled to that person, then we're going to miss the thing that matters absolutely most. And reconciliation then often will involve restitution, making it right. We've, we've taught our kids often, right? Like we just say, you know, say sorry. Sorry. Right? And, and that's what we do sometimes then when we're adults, right? We, somebody comes to us and say, you know, when we were in that meeting the other day and you said that, like, I just couldn't say anything there, but that was hurtful to me. Sorry. You know? Like you really mean it, right? Like just kind of then at that point makes things worse. How do you show that you mean it? You build, rebuild trust. And so, so, you know, our kids, if they, you know, they borrow something from the, their sibling and they break it, oops, I dropped it, sorry, you know, is that enough? You still have a child that's in tears because their toy or whatever it is is broken. And you extend that into any other avenue and maybe now it's not just a toy, now it's an iPod or an iPhone or a car, Right? Borrow dad's car and you smash it up. Is it okay to just to come home and go, sorry, you know, didn't see that light post, right? Blame everybody else. No, you own it and you say, I'm sorry, dad, what do I got to do to make it right? This was my fault. I caused this problem. Well, it's going to be 12 years of allowance (laughs) to fix that car. Right? That's how you make it right. You do the restitution. So the summary here is simply, go and tell. Are you with me? And if you read Matthew 18, 15, over and over and over again, you're going to see this. That when there is conflict, you, you take responsibility, you go to the person in private, discuss the problem, direct communication for the purpose of, of reconciliation. You see, a true priest peacemaker is guided, motivated, and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God <clears throat> has forgiven all of our sins 
and that he has made peace with us through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Through Christ, he has also enabled us to, to break the habit of escaping from conflict or attacking others, and he has empowered us to become peacemakers who can then promote genuine justice and reconciliation. Listen in closing to these words from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. We're called to live in peace. Let's pray. Father, that is a calling on our lives to be people who make peace. And uh, I pray, Father, that, that this message would just plant some thoughts and maybe some motives and the desire that when things are broken, when relationships are broken, that we would be the one to really take the initiative and to make peace. That by thinking that we can keep the peace by just not saying anything or not doing anything and realize that the issue doesn't go away and it doesn't get resolved. Lord, we know that oftentimes, I'm sure there's people here who have gone and have even taken this route and they've started with that direct communication and that didn't go well either. But I pray, Father, that our bad experiences with peacemaking would not prevent us from continuing to pursue and to work for peace. Because as we've been reminded this morning, we were called to live in peace. And so I pray, Father, that you would raise up at TCC and then the places that we go tomorrow morning to our families, our homes, our schools, our businesses, our places of work and employment, wherever we find ourselves tomorrow morning, that we would be the one, that we would be the ones who are called to live in peace. And Father, maybe that means that we would encourage others to resolve conflict as well. But that we would see our role, the calling on our lives, that we have a choice to be a peacemaker. And that choice is often a difficult one, but it is the right one and the one that you've called us to live. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.